Hello, beautiful people. You're listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food and Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and my guest today is the incredible Jamila Robinson. And I have wanted, as soon as we knew we were doing this podcast, uh, I think I asked her the first day to do this. Um, As soon as I met her, she revealed herself to me as someone with so much experience, layers, depth, a brain that can do things that mine absolutely can't. Um, at the time, it was it was manifesting at uh, when she was the uh, senior content strategist for the USA Today uh, networks. And she now is the creative, uh, she is the editorial director of Atlantic 57, the creative division of the Atlantic. And you might not have heard her name before. That's because she is behind the scenes doing all the work. She's not a chef, but she has probably had more influence on what you've cooked and how you've eaten than um, most people out there. Welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. You're just one of my favorite people. So to be <laughs> sitting across from you, there may be tears. I I fully expect, like, same back at you because we, we have, it's funny, we haven't gotten to spend a whole lot of time in person together, but I feel like we've had so many in-depth conversations via DM, via... Via DM, or it's always at the James Beard Awards, <laughs> or maybe it's at, has been at the Atlantic, uh, the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival, yeah. where we're just chatting and talking about food and talking about life and discovering how that intersects with everything we do. Yeah. And the, the thing is, we we go deep pretty fast on this. And I, I really love that, that you are willing to reveal so much about yourself uh, to me and then increasingly to the world um, about just everything that you're, you're dealing with on all different levels and stuff. And that really opens up a pathway for people to talk about a whole lot of different kind of things. So let's, uh, um, there are so many places we could begin, but let's talk about your time with uh, USA Today and what you're doing and how you influence food culture there. Sure. So my time at the USA Today Network, hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, uh, As a senior content strategist, and a lot of people try to figure out what does that mean. And there's an intersection of how we take content and we send it to other places. So how do we think about not only the key topics that we want to cover, but also how our audiences experience that information. So being able to figure out, is that on Instagram? Is that on WhatsApp? Is that on Snapchat? Is it in video? Is it on OTT podcasts or podcasts? Thinking about how we take our content and take the stories that we develop and build them and take them to other places, bring them to audiences, whether that might be a live event, and developing that in the story inception. So thinking about, oh, we're going to, oh, we want to write about food. Well, what does that mean? Does Mm -hmm. that mean we're going to be writing about it from the environment, um, from an environmental standpoint? So we need to go and do environmental forums on policy, or are we going to be doing hands and pans video? And we need to build a studio so that we can show people how to do that. And we know that audiences may just want to watch those videos. They may not want to create those recipes. But then from another standpoint, well, what do what are people cooking? What are the trends? And then how do we not only teach people how to do mm-hmm. that, show them in compelling ways and tell them beautiful stories and, and also amplify the reporters, the chefs, yes. 
um, who create all of this for us and bring that into one one place. So at the USA Today Network, a lot of my work had to do with um, our wine and food experiences, mm-hmm. which were in 12 markets, but also aligning what the reporters were doing. So yes. Mark Kurlianchik in Detroit, who's a great restaurant critic there, Liz Barrow in Indianapolis, um, Deborah Britz in Phoenix, um, creating, uh, bridging all of that content to amplify what we were doing with our events and how that aligns with what the newspapers were doing and what kinds of stories we presented. So let's talk about the reach of that. I mean, that's so many publications. How many sort of end viewers, readers, whatever is that? So you're talking about 109 markets, including USA Today. Um, and then also uh, the larger the larger audience of 100 million viewers and That's subscribers the the <laughs> across the country. Right. And so, so if you take one piece of like how we experience food, and most people experience food by going to restaurants. Mm-hmm. So what are and we talk a lot about at the USA Today Network about being able to work with communities. Mm-hmm. Well, there is no broader or more important community than the restaurant community how we eat where we go where you take your your kids all different levels that's the center of community from my perspective Mm -hmm. so being able to tell stories about communities means telling stories about restaurants and telling stories about how people experience food so that means bridging all of those reporters, yes. giving them the um, resources that they need. Um, I worked very closely with the Gannett, New Jersey team, which is seven newspapers. So, And then newspapers are always shrinking resources. So yes, absolutely. I think everyone's shrinking resources it, it, all the time. We keep getting smaller. <laughs> right. But what we were able to do with those seven newspapers with a very, very small team was tell restaurant stories about the 51 restaurants you absolutely have to go to in New Jersey. And it tells a story not only about restaurants and chefs, but towns and culture, ethnicities, inclusion, all of those things come together. And we told it in different ways, not only for our print subscribers, but for people who come to us on video, for people who come to us on social platforms, being able to bridge all of those things and tell all of those stories. You can do all of that through restaurants. And this is this is amazing. So you were able to have a lot of effect on the narrative around restaurants, what restaurants were deemed worthy of coverage. I, and I think that absolutely And I think we have to, sometimes, especially in media, we drill down to what are the best restaurants. I'm doing air quotes that (laughs) folks who are listening can't see. What are the best restaurants? I think it's more important to think about the restaurants that matter. Yes. Let's let's talk about what does that mean to you? What does matter mean? It, it, It could be a place like Ekiban in Baltimore that has these beautiful steamed buns with a fried chicken thigh. Baltimore is such a great. I went to I went to school in Baltimore, Baltimore so I have a particular love for it. Baltimore is just a great food city. Yeah, but it's it tells this cultural story. I think restaurants at Matter tell a story. They give you a sense of place. Mm-hmm. They tell you not only about the chef and the story that the chef wants to convey, but also stories about neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. A restaurant that matters that matters can be a tiny place that just has good shrimp and grits. Yes. Or it might be a place where you really only go to get 
as French 75. <laughs> you just went straight to my heart, <laughs> obviously. Um, but if that is a gathering place right. yeah. and that conviviality speaks to the town, the city, the neighborhood, I think that's a restaurant that matters. It can be a place that has history or it could be something new that makes people think about like Ekiban, that how cultures come together mm -hmm. and they breathe new life into dishes because of the cultural background of the person who's presenting it. That's something that matters. I think that how we think about which restaurants can not only be the ones that have huge amounts of financial backing. Right. A, a restaurant a that PR team <laughs> a P, or an incredible PR team and you know, investors and huge resources, it, it can be a place that where you just go and get a beautiful croissant. Um, one of my favorite restaurants is called Maketo in um, in Washington D.C. and and you in, live in Washington, and, and I live in Washington and it's Cambodian um, and fusiony, but. <laughs> Sometimes I just like to go get a croissant there. It's yeah. to me, to me, it's a restaurant that matters not only because it's trendy and I think it's one of the best restaurants in in Washington, but also because it's a gathering place. It's a, in a neighborhood that has changed but still has um, a cultural um, importance even through gentrification. It's one of the restaurants that came first and has built up its clientele, but is a center of the neighborhood. A restaurant that matters can be a place that's going to anchor retail. Yes. We think a lot about starting a new restaurant, but as a lot of big retailers are closing, that center now is a restaurant. Um, people may not, if there's a multi-million dollar development, they may not um, be able to buy a luxury scarf but they might eat at the Shake Shack. Yes. <laughs> well, we're seeing, I'm curious about your feelings, Hudson Yards just happened and it's a playground for really quite, quite wealthy people. And there's a Shake Shack there. There's very expensive ice cream, like hype beast ice cream that is happening. Well, and I, I think that there's a, the, the thing is that there's a place for everything. Yeah. And, and there's a place for the Shake Shack. There's a place for the specialty ice cream. And that the thing is, is that you, we want to bring people together. Yeah. And I don't think it's always a good idea to think, oh, well, it's, that's too fancy. Or yes. that's too, or, or, or it, it is removed from people because we need people. We need tourists. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need that. So we don't want to alienate those people. Um, and so I think, as as journalists, being able to tell people or to be able to tell our audiences mm -hmm. how you can experience this yes. in a way that feels comfortable to you. Some people are going to be able to buy everything that they want there. Um, but being able to make sure we address like different kinds of communities. This is a great place for ice cream. Take a date there. This is a yeah. place. This is, you know, uh, maybe. Yeah. Take your kids to see the architecture because it's important to take families to see architecture. You can take them to the Shake Shack and then helping a lot of a lot of food journalism has to do with telling the story about things to do, how people sp can spend yes. their time and the food the money. And protect their money, protect, protect their money, but also show them that, yes, you can go to this, you know, you know, $5 bill restaurant, but maybe you just want to go eat at, eat at the bar and share a plate. Yes. 
you can experience that in a way that is comfortable to Let, you. Let's and let's talk about that more. There was just an episode of Queer Eye that I saw, um, and it was it was a really lovely episode. And there was a woman who she had sort of lost her feeling of being beautiful, and she was wearing camouflage all the time, and all this. And and she wanted to go out on a special date night with her husband, and she was deeming these places too fancy. And Anthony did a really lovely thing. He took her to a restaurant and said. Let's get that word fancy out of there. Like I use, I always use the word fancy, like semi-ironically. Oh, like, oh, that's fancy. Um, but uh, he said, "How about special?" Yeah. And let's talk about what special means. I mean, I know that you know I've been a food journalist for a decent chunk of time now, and I know that even though I work at Food and Freaking Wine now, <laughs> and I still have some restaurants that I walk into and think they're going to sniff me out as riffraff, and eat, and I and I think if. I am having that barrier to entry, mm. then how must other people be feeling like that? And I always try to put myself in other people's shoes uh, you know, and, and make them feel comfortable. I know that there's a restaurant, um, La Grenouille, uh-huh. <laughs> that, you know, it's fussy old French, uh, fancy French. And, uh, you know, and I love it, but I know that I went with a friend of mine um, who was just intimidated from the get-go and had sort of an awful experience yeah. because she was visiting it with with you know her own discomfort and and so it, it colored the the whole sort of thing and I just wanted to be like I don't know it was it was just such an upsetting thing to me to see her feel so displaced yeah. I totally understood it I I had a similar experience I took a friend to um, Le Bitar in uh, in Tribeca and and. And she told me later that even though she loved the meal and it was wonderful mm. and that and she thought about, gosh, I didn't know that this was for me. Oh, that, yeah. And I think that that's I bring a little bit of that to how I approach strategy, yeah. dining strategy is not removing people from what is possible for a re- the idea of what restaurant is for me because i think yes. everything is for everybody yes and and i i look i love a fancy restaurant mm. i love a five star restaurant but I am not above Popeye's chicken. No one should be. Every <laughs> chef I know loves Popeye's. They, they do not think they can make better fried chicken than Popeye's. I can't. I don't, I, no. I, I don't cook meat at home a whole lot, and I certainly cannot fry chicken. But just circling back, yeah. that that sense of intimidation, yes. Yes. I like to peel that back, yeah. especially in, in with how I work with reporters. Mm-hmm. Not only tell me about the ambiance and the design, the plates, but breaking down the language so that it feels accessible. Accessibility should not be a dirty word. Yeah. It should be, it should, it, people should feel like, yes, I want to walk in and, um, and not feel like people are going to ask me, um, can I help you? And not, do you have a reservation? <laughs> it should be welcome. 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 I'm glad to see you. I'm happy yeah. to be here. Okay. okay, so let's unpack 
the experience then you said you took your friend to Batard and you know we were sort of off camera talking about the fact that you know I happen to know the front of house person there is he's like he's my brother he is family to me he and his his wife are, are, are family to me and I always say the reason that his hospitality is so good even though he was uh, John Winterman was the maitre d' at Danielle for a very long time and at all of um, Danielle Balut's restaurants and worked uh, for Charlie Trotter and Gary Danko and stuff he never forgets he's from Indiana yeah. And 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 it's and and we were talking off camera about how every time I go to Batar cuz I like to take friends there. It's sort of oh, that, that makes the so place happy. that I like to take people for their birthday is it's always welcome back and I'm so glad to see you again. And then my friends feel so special there. And and a friend of mine who maybe 10 years ago wouldn't have felt as if a restaurant like that was for her can walk in and, and not only feel welcome, but, but think, yes, I should absolutely treat myself to dinner here. Yes. Um, every time I come to New York, absolutely. I deserve that. That's, that's special. That's going to be the thing that I do for myself. And I think that that's something that food can bring us this bit of joy, yeah. Um, even if it's even if it's the even if you save all your money and you only go once a year, yeah. that's the time that you go. It's it, and it, it's so it's so important. And I think for all different ways of feeling comfortable, I I just I so vividly remember. So my mother's disabled and you know has uh, you know a lot of physical problems, and my parents were uh, coming to my uh, my senior or my my grad school thesis show upstate, and they had wanted to stay at this particular place. They'd been so excited about it, and they have a dress code for the dining room. Um, but my mother, that she can't really much walk anymore, but at the time she was having to wear you know, like uh, athletic shoes. And so, cause that was what was comfortable for her. And my dad said ahead of time, like, Hey, look, my wife has these mobility issues. She's going to have to wear that. And they said, well, she can eat in her room. And the fact that there wasn't accommodation for a different kind of body mm-hmm. um, in there uh, broke me. And he, he, he had some things to say <laughs> about that and got back to them and, and, you know, said, well, have you heard of the Americans with Disabilities Act and all these things? They offered a, like a free night or something. And he was like, well, I'm never coming back to your establishment. So yeah, that's <laughs> not the answer. <laughs> and they, but they said they were training their staff <laughs> after that. Fair so. enough. But I think as, you know, as we, as journalists, ideally empower people to go out to restaurants more and say, this is for you. This is, you know, people from your community, the people who work at restaurants are not fancy people. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's something that we have to remember as we think about equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite places in Washington is a Starbucks. It's the signing Starbucks. Oh, tell me why this is. So um, I live in a neighborhood that um, has a huge deaf population because Mm -hmm. of Gallaudet University, um, which is essentially like the Harvard for, Mm -hmm. um, for hearing, for deaf and hearing impaired people. And so there's a Starbucks nearby where it is all signing. Oh, I've read about this. I yes. think Extra Crispy, we did a story about this. It is one of my favorite places because it challenges the ideas of equity and inclusion mm-hmm. and challenges people in the neighborhood to learn a little bit of ASL. So not oh. only, so it's not just about the coffee. Mm-hmm. It's about living in a community where 
you know that a lot of people yeah. cannot hear you. Right. And and so how you react to people if they don't say good morning, it may be not because they're rude, it may be because they can't hear you. Right. And that that location I think has brought so much to our community because not only does it serve part of our community, but it makes our community so much more inclusive. Yeah. And I think that that's important as we think about how, especially as journalists, how do we include people? How do we think about language equity? Mm-hmm. Are we presenting our information in ways that's accessible, not just by platform, but by different kinds of people? And are we taking that information to communities that may not have a relationship with us. And so I think about some of my work at the USA Today Network really made me think about we have a huge changing demographic population and we have to start now thinking about how are we going to serve mm-hmm. communities that are going to be non-white by 2043 I think is the year yes. and it's happening very very fast and as media organizations have to be more inclusive whether that is in language or ethnicity or hiring, race, color, clearly. gender and our hiring no, we've got some oh, so much some work, work to do. To do. <laughs> and I think we have to be more open and not saying, just saying, oh, we're making strides because, yeah, you're always making strides. But what does that mean? <laughs> does the information, does the content you create work in a way for different kinds of communities? Or have you considered how other communities are going to receive that information? Mm-hmm. And is that, it, it is the audience that you have the audience that you want? And in the future, is the audience that you, the, the audience that you need, will they have a relationship with you to make your path forward in the future possible? And so, Circling back, it's it's a yeah, little no, bit of a this, tangent. It, it all it all comes together. But when you walk into a, re- a restaurant and you feel like it's for you, yeah, you create a relationship at that moment. And so when you create that relationship and you think, wow, this is a place that I really love, I'm going to bring my my dear friend here from her birthday. The bringing people thing. You bring people along. And so it's a a little bit metaphorical, but I think we do the same thing as journalists. Mm -hmm. I'm going here. I'm going to share this article um, with you that Atlantic 57 put together about the World Food Program. And you're going to learn more about what we do. And oh, my gosh, this is interesting. And oh, you also have this renewal project and that has to do with food also. I'm going to bring I'm bringing more people in. I'm bridging I'm I'm bringing my community with me. It's a good metaphor for how we bring people to the table. You know, I just want to have some people over. You know, we're going to have lemon tarts and French 75s. Oh my gosh, you're making my perfect <laughs> menu. <laughs> right because I you know, I, I I think people sort of have lean too much on the like you know food brings people together without sort of unpacking what that means who gets to sit at the table who built the freaking who table built the table yeah at who's who's making the food all of this this kind of stuff and i think we're in a state of uh disassembly and reassembly right now and i think that it's so important it's way overdue and i think we have to 
sit in the discomfort of that in a way and not make a, a lot of people work too hard we who have been bring, doing the work all the, along. We bring people to the table. Yeah. But have mm. you asked them what they brought? Yeah. Have you asked them about their their dish? Have you asked them if they want to help and what they could possibly bring? Um, I'm being metaphorical again, but I really do think is as we as we think about that, and especially as we think about diversity and inclusion and wanting to be more open and we want to help build relationships with different kinds of communities, we have to put people not only at the in positions where they can sit at the table, mm -hmm. but they are going to bring something to the table and they're going to tell you about their dish mm -hmm. and they're going to tell you what they want to serve in the future. Yes. I think that has to be the path. It's not enough to say, oh, yeah, we're going to bring people to the table. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we, we've been saying that for a really, really, really long time. But what action comes after that? I, I'm a very what comes after yeah. that kind of person. The what's next? We've what's we've we've this? we've built this strategy. Well, what's the thing that comes after that? Because otherwise, it's just lip service. It's just a, a band aid kind of thing. And you you've done a lot of work uh, with the James Beard Journalism Committee about yeah. uh, I, I love we we were sort of just we were ships in the night on, <laughs> on that and you were coming in as I was leaving and I was so so happy uh, that you were coming there because you have a big influence influence on I, when I was on the committee people would would say like why wasn't this story nominated what and why wasn't that story nominated how about this piece people didn't know you had to uh to self-nominate that it cost money to yeah. do so uh they they sort of thought that it was a mysterious process Absolutely. that we were trying to make more transparent and, you know, often failed at the fact that stuff has to be nominated, that you you have to make certain dates for it. There are certain um, criteria for inclusion that it, it costs a fair amount of, of, of money to uh, toward it. So there would be people who had great stories to tell who just didn't know the process of it and, didn't, and you know, had to suffer from the expense of it and also didn't know that they were welcome. And that was, right. a, you know... A, a big failing on on the part of the committee that we're trying to do, but you talk about what you have done since you've gotten sure. there because it's changed in some really meaningful ways. Sure. So I've been um, on the journalism committee for two years now, and um, and I have been associated with the James Beard Foundation um, in a number of ways, from being nominated for awards and had teams who had won awards, um, but more broadly, being on the committee is the seat at the table. Yeah. It's not only having influence over the criteria of the awards, but it's also thinking about, well, how can we be more equitable? Mm -hmm. This year, um, and the uh, the nominees for the journalism and the media awards will be announced on March 27th. But this year, we had a period for uh, of two weeks where we waived the fees for yeah. first time um, entries. So not only could people self-nominate, and they maybe they had a story that could have they that they thought I really believe in this, and boy, it was shared thousands of times on social. 
and being able to open that door for people and say, well, I know you're a freelancer and you probably don't make a lot of money and perhaps you didn't earn a lot of money for this story. We are going to make it possible for that so that you can nominate and be and and bring you into the organization. And I think that that's really important. And it's also changed in some meaningful ways about not only having more um, a more diverse uh, journalism committee, and that means you have influence over the judges and thinking about, well, oh, I think this person who has this incredible background in video could be a good judge, or this person who has a really interesting background in um, nutrition mm-hmm. might be somebody that we want to bring into the organization. And that makes a huge difference. We see that with the academies in, in, other, um, in other genres, in film and in music, when you have have a, a more diverse population of people who are in the academy, you will, it facilitates more diverse awards. It's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think last year um, in 2018, you really saw the, uh, some change. Michael Twitty winning oh, the, two awards. I was sitting next to Mayuk. Mayuk Sin. <laughs> um, or even somebody like uh, Mayuk Sin, who is just a Brilliant, beautiful writer, and, and so young. young. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so he is going to be able to offer oh, a brilliant writing for years to come, and and being a James Beard Award winner gives him even more cachet. Yeah, it's a platform you can stand on for the rest of your life. It is not a small thing, winning one of these. This is a jury of your peers, jury and, and of your well, peers. and increasingly, I will will say before it might not have been. It wasn't. We're we're building toward a piece where it is a actual jury it's of your actual, peers, and that yeah. takes work. Yeah, it 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 takes work. It is not an overnight process. Yeah. I like to say it's a process, not an event. It, and it will take more, and it will take a few more years. But we don't, we don't, don't want for 2018 to be a one-off, and that oh yeah, this was the year where you had a lot of black and brown people who won yeah. awards. But it, that is a process to bring people in the organization, and we can continue to grow. Um, and this year, I, I think I, I think it's okay to say that we had a record number of entries, Good. and I think that that's really important, and we will continue to grow. Last year. Um, I mean, somebody like Baxter Holmes from ESPN won the Feature Reporting Award for his article on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, how that fuels the NBA. A story like that maybe five years ago, I think it's fair to say that story may not have, not only would not have been nominated because of the awareness that his editor had about, this is a really good food story, you should nominate this for a James Beard Award. And Baxter Holmes said, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> First time entry, and he won the damn thing. Yes. And that shows the importance of like how we can bridge communities, that food touches every single sector of the economy and lifestyle and every, every organism in our landscape. And so if we can connect those people Mm -hmm. and let people know and be more transparent about what we do and who we are. And, um, and so it's been very thrilling for me to see the change and to be associated with the awards and for other people to say, Oh yes, my video about gentrified greens from the root is something that I should think about nominating mm-hmm. and me having a presence, um, I think on the committee helps that um, because 
they see me as an authority of, well, do you think this could win? Well, I don't know. But what, why, don't we, why don't we put it in front of our peers and bring more people into the organization? You have to, we have to keep bringing people to the table and we have to, get, we have to keep the doors open. So uh, we had been talking beforehand and you just said it about like you had a question in your voice when you said they look at me as an, an authority and you sort of like were looking at yourself like so we were talking about <laughs> imposter syndrome um, before. Like the thing is that the moment I met you, which was after one of one of these things, I was thinking like this, this woman knows the secret. She didn't see through the matrix like she she knows all of the things and how it works. And you have this this strategy brain. But you yourself, you've had to fight and to get that place and be it's a constant process. Can you talk about what that must feel like and how damn tired you must oh, be? Oh, it's exhausting. And, and the, the f- interesting thing about imposter syndrome is this idea that you're not supposed to be there. I don't have that. I don't have that See, issue. I do that. <laughs> I have that constantly. I, I know. Why am I hosting this podcast? <laughs> I know who Jamila is. I'm very confident in who I am and I am very aware of what I bring to the table. Mm-hmm. I I do have, there's some, and I always have to tell people, I need you to stay with me while I tell you how my brain works. Uh, I have an ability to see through lines Mm -hmm. um, in ways that I think really, it sets me apart from other, other editors. It's, it's really amazing because I remember we were walking to this party and I, I forget the specificity of like what we were talking about but you were playing like 10 dimensional chess with with this thing and I was just thinking I just wanted to crawl in there and understand sort of how the, the dimensionality of how you approach these things. It's it's my it's almost as if finding my my brain kind of works in in like I'd like to think of everything as a wheel and and if our content is the wheel what are the spokes that come out of that and then how do we keep that wheel turning and 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 add, and and adding more spokes so that's sort of like the electricity of my right. brain but I'm also an introvert and um and and I fight that too. I'm I'm constantly fighting with yeah, my introvert. I'm an ambivert, so I, <laughs> I I sort of jazz up for things like this, and then I go home and like have to sit in the dark for a while. Yeah, I have to sit in the dark, and sometimes, and I need a, a extraordinary amount of solitude. Same. because my brain is always working, and sometimes I need to turn it off a little bit. The problem with that, and how where the imposter syndrome comes in, is that. I know who I am, but getting other people to see it and get that buy-in of me coming into a room and saying, okay, I got this idea. And it's all formed in my head. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly how it's going to work and the resources I need and the um, the people and, um, and the platforms. It's harder showing other people how that process, <laughs> how that process works, and then getting other people to believe in you. Is that because they're not used to hearing this from somebody with your face? I, I think that's fair. I think I, I I don't know that for sure, but I it's it's something that comes into my brain like oh you know this little black girl thinks she is. Um, if only they freaking knew <laughs> who um, you were and how lucky they are to be in your presence. I mean, fortunately, I have been surrounded by incredible people who believed in me. Yeah. Whether that was the late, great Bob Magruder, who um, was the managing editor of the Detroit Free Press, who said... Tell me about oh, it. Oh, he's just was just a light. And he was the person... Um, 
he walked the walk yeah. on diversity. He was somebody who said, oh, well, if we don't have enough black journalists, we're just going to grow some, whether that was in college or making sure that people had access some. to... That's amazing. Um, um, had access to internships and and made the free press available to... Um, I grew up in Detroit. and oh, um, And so the Detroit Free Press... Uh, uh, high school journalism program of which people oh, like wow. Jamel Hill is also an alumni oh, and wow. John Elijon at the New York Times and um, gosh I didn't expect to be talking about Bob Magruder because um, you know it, it it's and he's and he hasn't been with us for a really really long time but I think about him all the time and I think about how he said to me when I was in college this work is going to require a lot of sacrifices on your behalf but it's a great place to be in just believe in you've got the talent you just believe in it and the other thing and I talk about this all the time he said to me it's it's the thing I think about and I oh whenever I'm teaching or working Mm -hmm. with students he said opportunity doesn't knock on your personal timeline oh you have to be ready even if you don't think you are and it's something that I've always carried with me right. when I've seen something in front of me. And, and, and I think about, well, I don't know. And yeah. I hear his voice saying in the background, opportunity doesn't knock on your personal timeline. Thinking of it like, and that's a, that's a kind of imposter syndrome. Oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Is this, and is, we as women do that. Yep, we do that. <laughs> we do that. We, oh, I'm we, not ready. I, I think like, the job I, I currently have um, I wouldn't, it, it came about in a, in a sort of strange way because I was coming from within the company. I'd already been working with food and wine and they kind of created a, a position for me because the publication I was working for was going a, a different way. If I had seen it, I wouldn't have applied for it because I wouldn't think I was qualified. Mm-hmm. And I was so, so, so lucky to have people who could sort of pull the threads of the things I do and make something that was right for me that I could serve in but I have you know so much of that thing that if I had seen the description of it I would think I'm not qualified for that I haven't done print before you know I had digital pretty down pat um I thought like podcasts I thought I can talk to people (laughs) Uh, but but print like no Mm -hmm. and I would think like why would anybody want want me to do this and yeah and it it was it was sort of like a you know I had to say yes and jump into the abyss imagine what it's like if we could say yes to everything where where we could start checking off that and sometimes it's just a matter of knowing the right lingo and being able I always like to think about being able to talk it's almost like talking in another language with no accent Mm. content strategist what does that even mean I'm a journalist who helps people figure out what platforms they need to use yeah and, and to me, it's very simple, but some of the language we use can become so intimidating, especially yeah. women and people of color where you think, yeah, I don't know if I could do that. Or Chad would do it. Or Chad would do it. And, <laughs> and, and Chad would t- probably feel totally fine. Like, oh, yeah, I'll figure it out. And we don't allow ourselves mm-hmm. The ability, the the time and the space to say, oh yeah, I, I okay, I'm ninety percent there. I can figure this other stuff out, or I, these are the things I absolutely don't want to do. So I'm going to do this much bigger thing yeah. over here because 
uh, I don't really want to figure that. And I was like, mm, that yeah. looks like that sounds like nonsense. What I and I think we don't allow like our brains to think about what's the biggest thing that we can do what's the biggest thing that we can offer and all the little things that the the checklist and the job description being able to think about how you want to carry media forward Mm -hmm. is a much bigger thing than just the checking the box and saying (laughs) oh can I do a social media strategy Uh, distribution channels (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I always say there's lots of you can learn. Like there's there's some things that you have and there are things that can be taught and you know and if you're you know you have employers or whatever who who see that thing yeah. that light that that thing that you only you can do you can but you can figure out some of the other can, stuff. You can learn or you can create it. Think about it. A lot of the jobs that exist now in media didn't exist 5 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely social media strategist, social media manager, <laughs> that job did, literally did not exist. Yeah. And so we call them different things, but really that's about delivery. Is How do you get this piece of information to people? And so, or, okay, a, a podcast, I want to sit and talk to people. I want to create a show. OTT, on, oh, over-the-top streaming. Okay, st- you said OTT, and I wasn't sure what that meant. Over-the-top <laughs> streaming is essentially Netflix. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's the Netflixification of, of, of television. I want to have a show, or I want to do eight episodes. But if I come to you and I say, and I write in a job description, needs experience with OTT, and then you got to get to the Google. <laughs> what does that even mean? Right. But if I say, can develop a new series, a, a new series for video, a new video series, has ideas about a, a show. Yeah. Then you're going to get something like Under Pressure. You can start thinking about what is the content that actually matters and not this checklist. And that's a different kind of thinking. And and I think we have to empower young people, women of color, women and women and people of color to be able to think about what their ideas are and what other things that they can bring and not just be able to say, yeah, I know how to write a script. <laughs> I, I think that's so valuable because, you know, I look at uh, job listings for th- for things and so, and I and I you know, again, because I think like what would I be intimidated by? What what you know, what wouldn't I? And I see ways that things could be written in a totally different way that would invite such a such a bigger base. And you know, I was actually talking with a friend recently and she's got a lot of um, physical issues and you know, deals with a lot of pain mm-hmm. and basically has to work laying down and she's she was, a fr- and she's got an incredible brain mm-hmm. and an incredible uh, storytelling ability, way and and uh, knack to getting to the heart of the matter, speaking fluently with chefs and all this stuff. But she's worried that she's counted out because physically being in an office is difficult for mm-hmm. her. And I was thinking, I know you, and I know your 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 brain. And if there, and she was afraid to even have a conversation with a yeah. workplace about saying like. You know, I would need my needs accommodated sure. to work for you. I was, um, Yashar Ali just had a thread on Twitter. I don't know when this is airing, but this was recent. And I I felt so, so understood by it. It was about ADHD, yeah. which I was diagnosed with last year. And it was 
almost word for word of my experience with it and, you know, talking about seeing all the possibility in a glass case that you don't have the key for and stuff. But he was saying he was taking on a new possibility and he had to tell the people up front, look, I can't be in an open plan sure. office. And because it's so hard to get work done there, too. Um, but like, I think accommodating people with different brains is important. Different brains, different uh, different capabilities. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suffer. I have pain let's, as well. Okay, let's and let's I, talk. I so I so I stand at work. Um, and being able to like sit all day or yeah. go to meetings all day. That can be challenging, and I think we have to open up the possibilities that we should, as in, as leaders, we should be asking people, what do you need? Not only, okay, what kind of stories are you going to bring yeah, us? What are you going to do but for me? What do you, but what yeah. do you need? What kind of barriers do you have? Do we have that we can break down to make your job easier, make your life easier? Do you need more time off? Do you need... Do you need a closed space? Do you need to stand up at work? Um, do you just need to? Do you need to have headphones on all day and yeah. not and not feel as if people aren't participating? Right. We have to think about what. You know, when we think about inclusion, inclusion is also just how people, what people's needs are. Mm -hmm. it, it's that individualism is, I think, is really important is and it helps us build better teams. Oh, my God. The stories are going to get out of that, too, are going to be so much better. And Absolutely. So you had been talking about, like, the saying yes to. Now, something that you and I talk a lot, <laughs> a lot <laughs> <laughs> offline about is um, what we have to say no to because we do both deal with a lot of uh, physical issues mm -hmm. um, these days. Uh, if you're comfortable talking about this. We'll, we'll see. We'll see see where that goes okay. <laughs> yeah but oh, so we both have conditions that can be painful to be in our our, our bodies, our bodies. <laughs> yeah and I've had to really drill down on what I say yes to and what I feel no to and deal with the fear of if I say no to this um are people just absolutely going to discount me forget about my my work I didn't go to this or, or am I going to be off people's radar I'm going to people going to think I'm no fun because like I can't drink right now because you know because I have to leave the party early because I feel like hell um all, all of these things and and still feeling okay and like a participant if I say no to things if I, not only if I say no but if I the challenge I would have is feeling as if I had to explain to people oh, it gets exhausting why I was in pain yeah and I tend to overshare me too <laughs> and and then there are moments I'm like oh man why did I tell them that because they're gonna think that I'm incapacitated and I can't work and I can't do yeah and, and you and I both do the work <laughs> and 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 we work we work really really <laughs> hard um but I found that by not telling people that I was in pain mm -hmm. all the time, it put me at a disadvantage because yeah. if I just didn't want to be bothered or people got on my nerves, mm -hmm. it was because I was in excruciating pain. Yeah. And until I had surgery and I had some other things happen that I was able to manage that, that and then when I started telling people, they were so much more accommodating. Yes. They were so open and and thanked me for tr my transparency. So it taught me that we have to communicate and we have to tell people what our needs are up to the degree that they that that feels comfortable. Yeah, you have to it's um, different in every situation. Some people don't want to hear it. Some people just need to know there's something they don't want to know the specifics. Right. I mean, but I but I think even 
but, but I think even as leaders, we don't really need to know all the information. Yeah. If, if someone comes to me and, and says, I just need some time off. Yeah. I am going to find the space because the work is going to get done. Oh, yeah. And I think we have to be we have to be and it taught me to be more open about the pain that I was in because I was suffering in silence for years. Yeah. And we had a conversation and I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah. I'm not suffering with this alone. And and I think we had we were hospitalized either. It was right around, right around each the other. same yeah. time and being able to check in and say, hey, how are you feeling today? It, I can't tell you how much that mattered to me to have somebody else who understood it and, and, and somebody who is as hard driving <laughs> and achieving as, as you. Because I, I think of you almost uh, you're a woman in motion <laughs> and I guess I think most of the times that I physically see you, you're you're somewhere, and everybody wants a piece of you, and and physically in motion, and and it's you know I had been feeling great shame, um, also, like because I felt like I couldn't achieve enough because you know my particular stuff, so much of it is you know it's female stuff yeah. or, or you know female or you know it, it's uh, you know endometriosis, and then I have a gut condition called SIBO. Just so folks know mm-hmm. what that is. Um, yeah. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I talk pretty openly about it uh, as well. And, but I had feeling, you know, it's an intimate pain yeah. and I, and I felt really mortified about it. But the fact that somebody like you who was still doing the work and still doing all this stuff, um, you were taking care of yourself and that gave me permission to take a beat and well, take care of myself. Well, you gave me permission because I had figured out in my head, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have the surgery and I'm going to be back in six weeks. And and you said, oh. pause mm-hmm. and take care of yourself. I should have taken more time. And and you said that. I should have taken more time. I did, yeah. And I needed more time because I, I mean, I had a pretty radical surgery and pretty radical condition and, and, um, and just needed a lot of treatment. Yeah. Um, but you saying, oh, I wish I had more time. Yeah. And and then having a, the support of my workplace saying, take the time that you need. It's okay. And I think that gave me the runway to to not only to heal, but to continue. Um, to not feel embarrassed about what yeah. was happening to yep. me, because I think, if I'm honest, I was embarrassed by same, it. Same, and and I didn't want to tell. Oh, my girl parts don't work. <laughs> yeah, um, I I felt very embarrassed, and I didn't. And 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 then it, my introvert is like, why are you telling people that? <laughs> because they it's don't a gift. need to know. No, so you're giving them a gift. You're giving them the gift of then their you know, anything that they have that it, they are not feeling okay about. It opens it up. It's an act of generosity. Vulnerability it, is generosity. Vulner- absolutely. Vulner- being more vulnerable. I mean, because if you can't be vulnerable, you can't have joy. Yeah. And you can't be helpful. And then I found that when people found out what happened to me, I was able to arm them with information that, they wouldn't have had like, oh, if you want to have this procedure, you need to be sedated for it. Don't let them tell you that it's going to be uncomfortable. No, it's it's it, yeah. it's awful. And yeah. and if men and if men had to have it, <laughs> they would put them under. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and and being able to be more open about not only my condition, 
but how I, but the recovery process. It's and and the and and then the the part of getting back to work because that was really all I wanted. I oh, wanted to be. I wanted to get back yes. to work. I wanted to be taken it's seriously. Self worth thing. I it's... wanted to feel like I was doing something. When my doctors are like, "No, sit down," <laughs> and I'm like, "But I want to write, and I want to, and I want a <laughs> video, and I want to skate, and I want to do all of these different things." And they were like, "No, no, you need to sit down." Yeah, and that helped me. T- that time oh, gave yeah. me time to get my head back into a space where I could be more productive and I could be um, a better journalist. I could be a yes. better leader because I had that time in that space. Oh, that is, it's so true. I, I had had a, fr- a friend who had a freak accident. A, um, a hot tub cover blew off <gasps> a roof and smashed her into the sidewalk. Like, sorry to freak everybody out, but that's what happened oh, and gosh. broke her arm like all this stuff and she she tried to she had to have surgery within a couple of days and she tried to go back to work like the next week Why are you doing that? yeah and she left like halfway she was like I'm the boss I need to do this and they're all like go home oh. and that was a great present from the boss to say like go home and and she so she told me take the time to do it and I didn't take enough I should have mm-hmm. listened to her even more I should have taken a few more weeks um the thing that brought me joy was seeing a video of you skating. So uh, you're a figure skater. I try to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have a long history in being a figure skater. Is that – and you're back skating. I'm back skating. I'm back skating. Um, also teaching learn to skate um, periodically. Hello, Fort DuPont. Hope you're listening. <laughs> um, that is something that brings me joy. Um, I don't want to run or lift heavy things. <laughs> But um, figure skating is something, it was a gift that I gave to myself um, when I was 25, which was kind of a long time ago, Um, because I wanted to learn how to skate backward. I watched Michelle Kwan, and I wanted to be her. She's the skater who got me off the couch and onto the ice, because I was like, oh, I've skated my whole life. I would like to go backward. (laughs) And I, I love decided I was I would take lessons, and I just fell in love with it. And I once I learned to skate backward, then I learned all the turns, then I learned the jumps, and I started competing. And it's amazing. And now that's something that I like to share with other people that if you can walk, you can skate. And it's also you know kind of metaphorical about life. You know, if you fall down, you get up. Um, you get up and you keep going. That's. Like the best lesson, I think, for anything in skating and in life, if you fall down, you get up. You keep yourself centered. If you want to move quickly, you have to stay centered. And that's something I like to share with other people. Um, I like, I prefer teaching primarily adults because, you know, when you're six, you know, your parents are going to do it. You're made of elastic. Your parents are going to do it. But then when I tell people that, Oh yeah, I'm still out here trying to get my axle back, <laughs> and and I'm you know running into the walls, and I can't see as well as I used to. So sometimes I hit the wall and a let's jump. Um, and, and Adam Rapon has a much better layback than I'm ever going to have. Um, and I want to be him. Um, he was here one day, and I like I almost freaked out, I lost my mind. <laughs> um, I was like, Can you teach me how to do how to get into a good layback? But that, it brings me a lot of joy, not only to see that feeling of flying, Mm. that feeling of flight, but when you 
see when you teach someone else to do it and that they learn that wait a minute this is not that hard and if I just add another layer onto it then and I turn my fingers in the right way it really looks like I'm doing something yeah I think that adds so much joy to people's lives it's sort of like when you cook when you make something and and you sprinkle some parsley over the dish and it just brightens it yeah. up or if you you know you bake a cake and you tap a little bit of confectioner's sugar over the top of a pound cake that suddenly it just feels so much more special that's kind of what skating does for me when I see other people (laughs) and when I tell them no you don't need the rail and just put your hands out to the sides and think about putting some pressure um, and bend down stand up step step glide and then they and then they realize that oh wait a minute this is actually easy and then they're off and often skating and arming them with that stability skating is all about stability and I think it's a good metaphor for journalism you want to arm journalists with tools so that they can keep telling stories when I teach skating I'd like to arm people just with the tools of how to use their edges so they can just keep skating um, even if you never take another lesson, even if you never learn to do back crossovers, being able to just get yourself off the sides of the barrier and into the center of the rink and and stand up and keep your head up, that's also a good thing. Keep your You have to keep your eyes in front of you. These are lessons that are work in skating and journalism and food and oh in life. God. Oh my God, that's that is so perfect. I'm get I'm getting the wrap it up signal from like I think that is a perfect note for that. So I I, I have some questions for you that okay. I ask everybody. So you're actually the first person who I've interviewed since the podcast aired. So you know some of the questions. So this is the first time, but because you put so much of yourself into nurturing other people and bringing up young journalists and stuff, um, you get to. Uh, I want to ask you, what is the selfish thing you want for yourself? And I want you to say it out loud to the universe so they can get it to. This is, I always say, the, the, the sort of Oprah, the secret question. What's the thing you want for you? The thing I want for Jamila is to keep doing work that she's passionate about. Food is something I'm extraordinarily passionate about because it's not really about the food. It's about life. It's about culture. And I want to continue to tell stories and to help tell, help people tell stories about food, life, and culture. It's everything. Recipes are everything. Um, it's the thing I want to continue to have that joy in my life. That is so lovely. And we have the speed round now. Okay. <laughs> What's your comfort food? Uh, lemon tarts. From anywhere in particular? Or you make them? I make them. Is there a recipe that people could find from you? Or? I make a very basic lemon tart. I could, I could. I, why don't I share it on uh, my Twitter profile, Perfect. which is at Jamila Robinson? It's the, it's a very basic. I, I mean, I three quarters, three quarter cups of lemon, three quarter cups of sugar, um, six tablespoons of butter, four, two eggs, two egg yolks. That's tart shell. I want it right now. <laughs> oh my god! Put a little meringue on top. Oh, that's so perfect. <laughs> what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Um, <laughs> um, the meal that always makes me emotional is whenever I have duck confit. Ooh. Um, is there a particular place that you had it that made you? That's something I actually cook at home. Oh. I make duck confit at home. It's, it's, it's something when I think about um, 
when I think about like it, it's kind of almost like a, a love story. My relationship with with Duck Comfy. I'll 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 leave pitch it at me that. that story, please. <laughs> I I will I will pitch you that story. I will pitch you that story because that sounds. I I feel like that's going to be a banger. <laughs> it's going to be really great. Um, what is the last meal that someone cooked for you, not in a restaurant? Oh my gosh, my cousin Michelle um, made Thanksgiving dinner, um, and. That's, that's always a meal that I always had to cook, um, and, and not Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, mm-hmm. and um, and she's an amazing cook and a really really good baker. And what it did was she actually make? Kind of, uh, just the, all of the basic stuff. It was you know turkey and dressing and, mm-hmm. and and all of that kind of like celebration food. Yeah. Um, but it was really nice not having to do it. It's so great. And I always think about like thinking I need to participate in it, but that's a great thing about family is when people cook things for you. That's so nice. So what living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook for them? This is another thing we're putting out to the universe. This person hears it and you get to cook for them. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I think, so Seal is my favorite musician, probably favorite singer. Um, and I would cook something that what, so my favorite song is of his is Future Love Paradise. And it goes, but if only you could see them, they would have nope on their faces. Well. Um, I would probably cook something like, I would probably, oh my gosh, I, I'm thinking about all of these different dishes that I, that I, I could make. I would probably make something like a Something that's like a pasta, like a fresh pasta, maybe mm-hmm. a cacio, a pepe, something simple. Because I think his voice doesn't have a, he doesn't do a lot of ornamentation. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. He just sings the song. And there is something about cacio e pepe that is mm. like, it's, it's a perfect dish. It's the perfect dish because it's so simple and it's so straightforward and it's so wonderful and luscious and I think of his that's the thing I think of when I think of his voice in Parpadelli of course dear seal (laughs) Jamila would like to cook for you I hope this happens (laughs) I hope it does too oh wow that's a great question (laughs) wouldn't that be like that would be so fun and um last question you have five uninterrupted minutes for self-care what do you do oh I get my nails done oh Um, I I, uh, that is that is my that is my thing um manicure pedicure that is the even if it's sometimes I like to just go and have the polish changed because it's someone taking care of my hands and yeah making sure they're neat I used to be a nail biter I used to, oh, I used to that was I'm how I picker. process my anxiety was was by chewing my nails and that has not only helped me break that habit but is also my self-care I love that. Oh yeah. my gosh. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Oh my gosh. It's such a joy to be here oh with my, you. I could go on for like five more hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you and I are due for lemon tarts and French lemon 75. Lemon tarts and French 75s <laughs> anytime. I think when this airs, we need to be. I think that's a great together. idea. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much today to our, our guest, Jamila Robinson. You can find her on all the socials at Jamila Robinson. You can see her work uh, through the filter of Atlantic 57 and just all over the place. Get to know this woman. 
And thank you to our producers, Jennifer Martinick, Alicia Cabral, and Amy Frank. Thanks to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review, or rate us. If there's something you would like us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear more from, please let us know. And you can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com, Food and Wine's YouTube page, and all the platforms. Thanks for listening and take good care of yourself until the next time. Bye.